Hello, I'm Melanie Mitchell, and I'm here with uh, Richard Danzig and Joe Uchel. Uh, we're going to be talking about Richard's paper called Machines, Bureaucracies, and Markets as Artificial Intelligences. This is a really um, unique and interesting take on artificial intelligence. I had, had never seen a take like this before. The idea of the paper is that the, the rather than trying to uh, think of AI or machine intelligence as something analogous to human intelligence, it might be uh, more useful to think of it as, as more analogous to the intelligence of markets and bureaucracies. And maybe with in, in the conversation, we'll try and define those a little bit more. But um, the idea in the paper is that this view really changes how we think about the way humans would interact with AI, how they would conceptualize it, and how they would best uh, kind of regulate this, the kinds of systems that are coming out now of um, the AI uh, commercial world. So, you know, AI was originally conceptualized as, as something analogous to human intelligence, but it's turned out, at least in the last few decades, as something quite different. It's um, much more based on statistical correlations and big data than on human perception and human reasoning, or um, as Richard points out, concepts and conceptual causal understanding, which is sort of the hallmark of our intelligence, but not at least yet of, of AI systems. AI systems like bureaucracies and markets are better than humans at dealing with huge amounts of data something humans can't really do, and that they, and making decisions, seeing patterns in this data, re re reducing complex data to, uh, to, to uh, patterns. However, these systems, AI, bureau bureaucracies and markets, can be seen as quite narrow intelligences. They're, they're opaque, they're somewhat brittle and rigid. They don't often don't have common sense, something that we all feel when we interact with bureaucracies and a current day AI. Um, and uh, they are somewhat alienating sometimes to us as humans. They don't, it feels like they don't understand us as individuals, but rather they, they aggregate our data and uh, re reduce it to some uh, something much more simplified, whether it be uh, the prices of, of uh, commodities or um, categorizations like what AI systems can make. Um, and Richard says that he, he believes the, the, that the, the problem of controlling AI systems might in fact be better understood as analogous to controlling low-level bureaucrats, which I thought was very uh, interesting and unique. So I'm gonna just start off our conversation with a couple of questions for Richard. What do you see as both the most significant aspects of the analogy and what are sort of the disanalogous parts of, of, of this comparison? Well, thank you for undertaking that good summary and that nice comment on the paper, Melanie. Uh, as amongst the three of us, you were the, really the greatest expert on artificial intelligences, uh, artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, and 
it occurred to me as you were speaking that maybe the most productive use of this hour would be if you just ask yourself some questions about this paper and the two of us were quiet. Uh, I'd be delighted uh, to, to hear more about your views about it. Um, in terms of your question to me, I think the, um, the analogy to bureaucracies on markets uh, helps to underscore uh, the reductionist and correlative characteristics of machine intelligence and to bring home to us how those uh, characteristics um, can in fact be controlled and how they are not unprecedented. By reductionist, I mean that um, a machine intelligence is striking for its tendency to reduce everything to pixels and a binary uh, attributes and accumulates them that way. It doesn't capture anything outside the immediate blinkered vision of what it is uh, focused on. And it doesn't uh, consider texture and external considerations and the like. But this is very like bureaucracies and markets, that bureaucracies and markets uh, wind up having, uh, in markets, it's price, for example, and uh, collateral effects uh, that aren't considered and embedded in that uh, or ignored. Uh, in bureaucracies, bureaucrats are famous for show me the form, I reduce it all to the form, I fill it in, and then I assess something in comparison to that. And the correlative characteristic is uh, that tendency to look at correlations. Does it fit the form? Does it, how do the prices correlate with one another, the bids and the, uh, the offers and the acceptances? So I wind up in the end with a, uh, with a price as a resultant. So when you see those similarities, you can see uh, how um, we then uh, have struggled to control bureaucracies and to control markets. And to come specifically to the point you're raising, we, for example, in trying to control lower level bureaucrats, um, have invented a variety of rules and procedures. We have some human supervision um, we have rights of appeal to human beings. We have regulatory aspects that say you can do this and you can do that. And we have, for example, aspects of promotion. Um, we put people on probation when they start and we promote them to more and more responsibility. You know, and, uh, people who are listening to this may not be inclined normally to think about soldiers as bureaucrats but coming as I do from experience in the Defense Department, I see how we introduce junior enlisted men and women or junior officers in uh, very supervised, limited roles. And then over time, we gain more confidence in them. That's not something typically we think about with machines, but in fact, I think it's an insight that derives from the comparison that may well apply to machine and intelligent machines. So that's a uh, uh, an example of a, of a similarity here. I just would note in terms of dissimilarities that uh, we do have uh, in, uh, in markets and bureaucracies, a huge amount of familiarity with them now. These are inventions of uh, essentially the last 500 years. Um, and the result is that we've become accustomed to them. 
we think of artificial intelligence in machine context as artificial and unfamiliar. And uh, that artificial means that it's unnatural in some way. But that's precisely the way bureaucracies and markets were described by people who first encountered them in, for example, 1400s. Um, Hobbes calls uh, the state artificial man. And people who encountered the, the market said, oh, it used to be I knew everybody I dealt with and they understood things and we understood what fairness was. And now, in fact, I'm dealing with this impersonal, cold thing. So that difference, the shock of the new, is something that we confuse, that we see now in machine intelligence, but get confused about uh, because we think it's something inherently new when, oh, I'm sorry, different, when in fact it's just that it isn't familiar to us. And once bureaucracies and markets grew familiar to us, we may protest about them, we dislike their opacity, something we can come back to. But the reality is that uh, the fact that we're used to them is uh, uh, a big difference and that uh, causes us to more readily accept them. I could say more, but I've, I've gone on already too long in regard to this. Um, and I think these are some topics we'll come back to. Great, thanks. Uh, Joe, do you wanna comment? Uh, before reading this, I wasn't really thinking about um, um, markets or bureaucracies in terms of inputs being converted over the course of multiple nodes in a network into various outputs and optimizing in the middle. Um, but what's, it's both very clever and very frustrating because we're aware of many of the problems which um, emerge from markets and from bureaucracies. Um, that we are unable to address. So both, it's something, it's a way to get a handle on the issues, but it's also a way to imagine issues that we haven't really begun to address with, in terms of, um, in terms of algorithms. Yeah, I think that history uh, is important because it enables us to harvest hundreds of years of experience and different methods we've used that we succeeded or failed with. And in the end, it kind of normalizes artificial intelligence, machine intelligence. My suggestion in the paper is that it's a, we can think of this as a set of artificial intelligences. They're not, as Melanie points out, by any means identical, but machine intelligence, markets and bureaucracies, the three of them, can be thought of as a group. And in that sense, this no longer leaves us with quite such a unique uh, uh, set of issues to grapple with as people often talk about machine intelligence doing. Melanie, was the analogy persuasive to you at all? In some ways, yeah, it was quite enlightening. But, you know, one one thing that stood out to me was, you know, the, you, you point out that you know current AI, like like markets and bureaucracies, is really based on statistical correlations. You know, they, and and they try and average rather than uh, sort of seek out an understanding of individuals or of causality. But the the people I know who are the most you know kind of forward thinking in AI, what they're trying to work on is exactly trying to go beyond that kind of statistical correlation. Uh, 
idea and get towards causality and true kind of conceptual understanding in these systems. They're seeing that as the big next big frontier. So if that actually um, succeeds, does this analogy then break down and, and the ideas about um, regulation and how we should um, how, how we should control these systems change? Yeah, well, first off, uh, I can only talk about machine intelligence as we have it and as mm -hmm. we are likely to foreseeably have it in the years immediately ahead. The further future may be something completely different, as in fact, present machine intelligence is very different from what we envisioned decades ago. Um, so I, I, I plead uncertainty on this point. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to anticipate where this all may be in 2050, although we can come back to that. Um, it, in the paper, I was particularly pleased that you uh, were sharing this, this session, Melanie, because in the paper, the leading authority I cite for this point about correlation rather than conception is you. Um, so <laughs> I hope that this would appeal to you um, in, in this regard. I don't think we're close to that conceptual approach. I don't see achieving it over the years immediately ahead. But if you do, it's worth your saying that. Uh, I'm interested in whether you think it's near future or far future. I, I think it will be a, a gradual progression. Uh, I don't think that we'll have machines that in some sense can understand better uh, or like humans anytime soon. So I think you're right. This is the kind of system that we are going to be seeing, at least in, in wide deployment in the near future. I suppose so I think your points are well taken. I suppose I'd go a little further and I'd be interested in whether you would. That, uh, it's not just that I see it uh, as not around the corner. It's that the streets we're going down now in terms of the use of deep learning and so forth are extremely rewarding, but none of them actually take us towards that point. It's going to involve a whole different neighborhood or a quite different approach, it seems to me, that might get us there. Does that seem to you to be an overstatement? No, I agree with that. Uh, of course, the term deep learning keeps getting redefined in the field. So uh, hey, it's your field. <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard to um, to pin it down exactly what that means at any moment. But I agree with you. The kinds of deep learning systems that people are working on now are not going to get us to this kind of sort of causal conceptual understanding. With all due respect so, to your field, it's not just that deep learning keeps being redefined. It's that art, as I point out in the paper. Artificial and intelligence are not defined and well in any meaningful way. And in the paper, I offer the uh, the wisecrack that uh, having not defined artificial and not defined intelligence, people try and put the two together on the theory that one thing we don't understand and another thing we don't understand when combined will produce something we understand. The field is <laughs> void of definitions in these arenas. So insofar as I offer imperfect analogies, I, uh, I'd only argue that uh, everybody seems to be pretty charitable about a certain muddiness at the mar margins in these things. I just want to ask one more question before I go to Joe. Um, I, you know, it's really, I, I, I was very interested in your idea about controlling 
intelligent machines, at least the kind we have now, uh, thinking about, you know, the, this analogy with um, low level bureaucrats and military personnel and, and, you know, this idea of a probation is, you know, quite a good, I think it's quite a good idea. Uh, that, that being said, you know, we, with, with um, humans, when we're evaluating them and evaluating their, their kind of performance, we have a lot of assumptions that we use about how human thinking works. And it turns out that machine, if we, we try and evaluate machines in the same way, often uh, the machines will fool us. They, they actually are using thinking processes or you know, information processing pro pro properties that are quite different than what humans are using. Uh, and therefore, they, they are much less, they tend to make mistakes that are very different than the kinds of mistakes humans make. And um, do, you, do you think that, that the, the fact that they think so differently than we do, if we want to use the term think, is going to create an, a problem when trying to evaluate them? Um, I think it does create a problem. Um, but first off, I think humans are much more opaque vis-a-vis -vis each other than we generally recognize. Um, do I really know how the two of you think? Well, I might make some inferences. You know, if I push some chocolate in front of you, the odds are you would respond in a certain way. But in fact, we don't so terribly well understand one another. In fact, as Tversky and Kahneman and others have pointed out, we don't understand ourselves very well. We tell ourselves stories about how we think. Um, but in fact, those stories are frequently illusory. Um, so uh, we ought to have a pretty uh, low baseline for our pretensions about understanding. Then on top of that, think about markets. Do we understand how markets work? Um, you know, like many people uh, who've uh, uh, reached the stage where they have some money invested in the stock market, I read each day uh, with interest the um, assessment in some leading newspapers of what the market did the day before. And it's really a, an astonishing array of uh, allocations of reasons to, oh, it's uh, market went down yesterday because of the Ukraine. No, actually, somebody else wrote about uh, how the market went down because the Fed was raising interest rates. Somebody else talks about supply chain problems. They all impute to the market their theories. So in fact, our tolerance for opacity is extremely high in these contexts. Um, that in fact also underlies the, the character of these things as uh, markets particularly and, and machine intelligence as being unpredictable. Um, I observe in the paper that if markets were predictable, we wouldn't need them. Markets are a method of taking a large amount of data that is uh, opaque or that are opaque to us and uh, assimilating them in ways we don't really understand. Um, we can say the words, but we don't understand whether it was the Fed or, or the Ukraine situation or whatever. So um, I think these things are in fact, inherent in calculations associated with very large amounts of data, 
assimilated by markets and by machines. And one of the insights we get from thinking about the analogy is more acceptance and understanding of the fact that we shouldn't be so pretentious about our understanding in other circumstances or regarded as necessarily so intolerable that we may be surprised by these outcomes, that they're unpredictable, etc. That is the nature of the problems that are being dealt with and the fact that uh, in, intelligence is often opaque. And it brings us to a topic that, that hasn't yet quite come up in this conversation, which is the emergent nature of intelligence. Um, but I don't know if uh, if you want to go on to that or, or do well, other even, things. Even before moving to that point, I think it might be worth, to, to Melanie's point that, um, the that artificial intelligences tend to make mistakes in ways that humans don't make mistakes i would argue that bureaucracy bureaucracies don't tend to make mistakes in the way that if that a human would that a single overseer would make that mistake um that there is the similar going off the rails problem um which tends to be where the outrages are it's not the near misses it's the it's the wide misses that people tend to get into these Kafka-esque uh, illusions of, of bureaucracy. Also, though, uh, things like biases. Um, another interesting similarity of the systems is the two their proponents in their early days, these are morally neutral instruments. Uh, the market will produce this outcome. It isn't that I'm biased, that the market is biased or whatever. It's, it's like calculating. Um, the bureaucracy will produce this outcome. It has no vested interest in it. It is disinterested. It's neutral. But in fact, what we find is that these systems embed biases because of the way they're either amplifying other characteristics in society or because of the way they're programmed. So that the corporation, which thinks that it's phenomenally racially neutral, is in fact vetting resumes um, with uh, disadvantages to people with unusual sounding names or African-American names or whatever. The bureaucracy thinks it's being completely neutral, in that case, a corporate bureaucracy, but uh, it turns out that it's, uh, it, it, it's embedded quite significant biases. And this brings us to another point, which is, I think, pretty fundamental, which is that um, it's not just a metaphor um, the, can, the analogy between bureaucracies and markets on the one hand and machine intelligence on the other. It's that these three systems, markets, bureaucracies, and uh, machines constitute an ecosystem in which uh, they uh, interact with one another and shape one another. And so in the resume example, a famous example, the machine brought in to look at patterns and resume selection. Oh, the theory is what we'll do is we'll look at uh, who, the, the run of resumes, let the machine discern who got called in for interviews. And now we'll uh, only call in for interviews people who the machine has uh, suggested be interviewed. So we still have human supervision, et cetera. What could be more unbiased than that? Well, it turns out that the human bias to begin with about who they called into interviews is now amplified by the machines and buried, if you will, underneath 
the machine now selects people to come in and it turns out that those people are disproportionately uh, uh, people like me, white males, um, because that's who uh, were being brought in by the bureaucracy. And in your paper, one of the points that you make about correcting those kinds of mistakes is that a lesson from both bureaucracies and markets is that um, correction doesn't come from manipulation of the internal system, that it tends to come from an external overseer of the system. That rather that and that that might be something that we, you can abstract to dealing with problems in artificial intelligence. That some of the prop, solutions to the problems won't be technical solutions, but uh, human capital being put over um, in an oversight role, which uh, may be something that you might want to uh, to expand upon. Yeah, I think that's that's quite quite a good summary. I, I'd add that um, we create competitive institutions as well. We don't give all power to one bureaucracy or to a market. We also say, well, there's a court system that regulates this, or we have in a bureaucracy inspector generals, or we have uh, higher levels of the bureaucracy that do that oversight, or we have the ability to go complain to your congressman about what the bureaucracy has done. So we create parallel systems and we let them compete. One of the things that's striking is that in authoritarian systems, they don't do that. They create a much more monotonic lockstep. So now coming back to my point about there being an ecosystem between bureaucracies, machines and markets, um, what happens uh, is that the uh, machines amplify certain tendencies in the markets and bureaucracies, these reductionist tendencies, etc. Um, if you don't have the correctives from outside that trio, that troika of members of the ecosystem, uh, you're, you're much more at risk. So I, I think... Um, of course, we need to regulate artificial intelligence in the sense of machine intelligence. We regulate artificial intelligence in the sense of markets and bureaucracies. We've learned we have to do that. So why would we think otherwise? And to proponents of the artificial intelligence machine learning systems, I would say embrace that fact. Get ahead of it. Because if you think like a market... Uh, or a bureaucracy, you can run untrammeled and you don't have any biases and everyone will love you as a calculating machine. You're mistaking the fundamental realities of what happens to these systems and the, the degree to which uh, reductionist and correlative systems are intrinsically necessarily biased and likely to make errors. Um, no, that's a big that message from my standpoint. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I just want, was wondering if that that meshes with uh, Melanie's under um, experience in trying to uh, address the problems with outcomes in, in artificial intelligence. Well, I think um, you know Richard's right that these correlative systems are going to make errors and have biases uh, of the kind we've seen again and again in AI. I I found that that the part of the paper that you were, that Joe, you were talking about the most, to me, that was some of the most interesting uh, part uh, of, 
the argument because, you know, the analogy here is that we we ordinary people, you know, deal with bureaucracies. One of the advantages is that they simplify things for us. They take a whole bunch of complex data and they give us a form to fill out or something like that. And it's, it's simplified, you know, and there's negative things about that too, because, you know, it's the, the forms are very rigid and there's only, you know, they kind of pigeonhole us in certain categories. But, you know, when I'm filling out my taxes, I don't want to have to fill out, you know, 60 different very complex forms, which now it's kind of getting to that <laughs> this way. But, you know, I, I think Richard pointed out that, that we have these new career categories that have arisen like attorneys and accountants and these kind of people who who are our guides through the complexities of the bureaucracy that you you know and that's something that we we don't yet have it with ai systems we don't have these kind of uh guides these educated guides who are um understand the complexities who can then make them make make us enable us to better interact with the the AI system uh, maybe that's going to become a new career category uh, kind of you know AI uh, chaperone or something I don't know what it would be called but uh, I I don't know if it exists yet but I think it probably will start to exist very soon I'd love it if it's I think called that's chaperone. Right. <laughs> um I just would point out that it's a the the same point runs in the opposite direction. The paper, uh, as you know, draws on uh, literatures in uh, bureaucracy and organizational theory and economics, as well as obviously artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, by virtue of the, what I'm trying to do here. Um, influential in that is a political science book called Seeing Like a State, which was published in the 1990s by James O. Scott, and I think it's quite a wonderful book. Um, and Professor Scott's observation is not only that you paying your taxes, Melanie, want that simplification that lets you check a box and the like. His point is that the state wants to be able to simplify us so that it can perceive us in an ordered and routinized kind of way. Uh, a, a striking example that I recollect from uh, from his book is um, the one of the German states um, began requiring farmers who planted trees to plant only one kind of tree in the uh, in in the on the acres of forest that they were developing, because that then enabled the state to assess the appropriate tax readily to value the the, the forest easily. And he, he points out there are lots of examples like that. I mean, the fact that we walk around with last names is by and large an effort by the modern state to make sure we're individually identifiable and not confused with others. Uh, and that facilitates conscription and tax paying and the like. There are many examples uh, of this. So it runs in both directions, uh, mm -hmm. tendency to as individuals um, gain some benefit from this, the state does. And both of us are disadvantaged as well by the reductionist uh, uh, phenomenon. An example I give in the paper is the telephone tree. How many times do you call and get the automated telephone tree and grow frustrated because 
you don't quite fit in the choices they want. And all you can do is yell into the machine, your phone or whatever, your agent or supervisor, get me a human being, please, who will understand me. Um, and this raises another point that, that I touch on in the paper, which is really in many respects, it's not that for many of us using these systems, it's not the lack of the system's clarity for us. We understand the system. The problem is the system doesn't understand us. It's a lack of empathy that all these systems are characterized by. And in this respect, markets and bureaucracies, classics of unempathetic entities, uh, pre-shadow, if you will, artificial intelligence, uh, machine intelligence, um, which is also, of course, unempathetic. One of the interesting issues that you come across both in um, artificial intelligence and in uh, bureaucracy, not necessarily with markets, is that the lack of empathy is both a feature and a bug. Um, you mentioned in the paper the, the idea of blind justice is considered an advantage. We, you, you don't want people, you, you do want, um, you want the idea of justice to not be biased towards people. You want it to be cold and unfeeling to an extent, um, you know, data driven. But at the same time, by doing that, we've, uh, we've institutionalized various kinds of biases into it. Um, the, uh, absolutely. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no. Um, go, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just completely, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, because my training to begin with is as a lawyer, um, I'm particularly sensitive to this point. If you talk to people who've gone through the judicial system, a frequent, complaint they have is that whether they were victims or perpetrators of crimes or parties to a contract, they never really got to tell their story. They, you can't go into court and just talk. You have to answer questions from your lawyer. And if you start to stray beyond that, the judge will say, just please answer the question. Um, so this is a, a, a very fundamental thing. And ultimately, it's dehumanizing. And that's the point I think that you're stressing uh, as a part of it. We want blind justice and we're frustrated by the blindness. One of the things I think might be, is kind of interesting about if you take a box and you put markets and bureaucracies and um, artificial intelligences into the same box and call that artificial intelligence, um, is how all of those kind of diverge from each other. Um, you mentioned within the paper, um, the value of predictability is different between um, governance and, and markets. Uh, markets, the goal is to determine an outcome that we don't necessarily understand. We don't necessarily know how pro the stock market is gonna go up and down, but we see it as an advantage that the, that, that that system goes on its own. Whereas if um, we, whereas if you didn't understand how um, bureaucratic outcomes were going to be be reached, if you didn't understand how, uh, if if a ju judge's ruling came completely out of nowhere, the predictability would be a, a tremendous problem. Um, so maybe, what ways do um, 
does artificial intelligence mimic markets more than bureaucracies? And what ways does it mimic bureaucracies more than markets? And do we even know yeah. in the long run which way, which way that goes? Yeah, I, I don't know. You're right. Uh, the predictability point looks different for markets where there's a high degree of unpredictability. As you say, you can't predict tomorrow's stock market. And if you could, I'd like to talk to you offline for a little bit about it. Um, I'm sure it'd be a profitable conversation from my standpoint. Um, and bureaucracies, we want that measure of predictability. Of course, we exaggerate the degree to which we achieve it, but nonetheless, uh, they're different in that regard. Um, so I think artificial machine intelligences um, are, as your question suggests, somewhere in between or slide along between different positions in that. If you take the most famous recent example of deep learning, uh, the AlphaGo performance in playing Go, um, they, there are aspects of it that uh, may be thought to be predictable. And then there's the famous move 37, which no one anticipated and took people a fair while to say, why did this move occur, et cetera. Um, so there are elements of predictability, bureaucratic-like predictability in this, and there are elements of unpredictability as in market-like outcomes. I do think, though, this comes back to the point I, I suggested uh, might, might be worth a little further conversation earlier, the nature of intelligence is that it observes emergent things. If we think looking at the machine that the outcome is completely clear to us, we just call it computation, calculation. We don't call it intelligence. Intelligence is somehow or another the perception from uh, a more obscure, uh, opaque mass of something that uh, the intelligent uh, participant draws from it that others might not. Um, it's something more than is there. Melanie, you've thought about this a lot more than I. I don't know whether you can uh, can say more that, that might enrich our understanding. Well, as you, yeah, I mean, as you say, the word intelligence means a lot of different things and it doesn't have a single definition. But I agree with you that when you know, when we think about intelligence, we think about being able to um, come up with something that, you know, essentially a, a, a mere machine wouldn't be able to do, you know, as a calculator, what, what have you, that it's not easily explainable in that way. Uh, and this has resulted in a kind of redefinition over the years of what we mean by intelligence. For instance, people used to think that playing chess at a grandmaster level would be, you know, is, is like the essence of intelligence. And it's, you know, mysterious how, how these people are able to see these incredible moves. Uh, but with the advent of machines like Deep Blue that were able to beat Gary Kasparov, um, so, suddenly chess doesn't seem to be an intelligent, you know, necessarily requiring intelligence so much anymore. So what, and so what do you say to people when they say to you, what is intelligence? I don't have a great answer. I think it's one of those terms that we, um, 
we're trying to make sense of just like all the other mental terms like consciousness and yeah. understanding and emotion and all of that there I, I think uh, Marvin Minsky called them pre-scientific terms meaning that they're you know we have this kind of colloquial view of what they are but there's no formal definition yeah it's kind of you know it when you see it one of the interesting <laughs> places where I think markets and bureaucracies, diverge a little bit is um, I guess what you would say in war games would be uh, fighting the game. Um, markets are very good at coming up with solutions that are outside of uh, the boundaries of what people would normally accept, whereas bureaucracies tend to follow the rules of the game as given. Um, and I think that that's an interesting distinction because artificial intelligences are phenomenal at fighting the game. Um, literally one of the famous examples of, of an interesting outcome of a artificial intelligence was finding a bug in Qbert that had been, uh, hadn't been noticed for, for decades um, where you could get an infinite score uh, without actually playing the game Qbert. Um, I, and I, I hate to loop back on it, but I, when, how can you, are there ways that you anticipate these kinds of systems diverging from each other that are useful distinctions that are more distinctions of the class of systems that are artificial intelligences um, as defined in, the, in this paper? And I guess it's a question for either of you. I mean, are there, are there useful, useful ways to look at the differences between those systems that only that um, that help distinguish the features of those systems from, say, human intelligence. So um, I'm prepared to say something on that. Let me just, if I can, stay a second more on the question of intelligence, which, as Melanie says, is uh, like consciousness, not well defined. In the uh, in the paper, I have in the footnotes, which are probably more extensive than many readers will care to read, but indulge my taste for pointing at stuff that uh, I think is worth reading. Um, I cite a paper by Carol Cleland and uh, Chris Chagla um, that they did for NASA when NASA asked them to define life because NASA needed to know how to deal with what it might find on other planets, et cetera. And they came back and, and I thought very insightfully said, we can't define this. Um, and they offered an analogy, which was uh, the medieval attitudes towards defining water and how people at that time could not define water and thought things like acid was water because it had some of the same kinds of characteristics of fluidity and so forth. And they point out that only when we really had a scientific understanding of water and could define it as H2O, could we really draw the distinctions? And I think the point is our understanding of intelligence is still so immature that we don't have that. We're like medieval scientists trying to grapple with the character of water or for that matter, alchemy. We shouldn't be too pretentious about this. I, I, yeah, I think that yeah, it's, 
it's not atypical. I mean, that's not that's a very typical thing that happens in science in general. That the like the main term of the science is undefined for a long time. So I know you know the idea of force, for example, in physics. You know, one of the most important concepts in the whole field of physics. Newton talked about force, but he was really worried because he didn't know what force was. People called it spooky action at a distance, right? They didn't know what it was scientifically until the advent of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, um, so that, that, that kind of situation where you have a, a term that's like the, the most important term in, in a field, like intelligence and artificial intelligence being ill-defined, it's not so unusual especially for a very young science of, of engineering as opposed to science is uh, you, you don't need to know what the term means. You just need to know the problem it solves. <laughs> right. Well, we don't know that either. Well, I, I wanted to make a, I wanted to make a quick comment about some, something Joe said, if I can, um, that may about the Cubert. Um, you know, the AI system kind of cheating, finding the cheat that would allow it to uh, sort of break the rules of the game. That's ubiquitous in markets, right? I mean, at least it, the human interaction with markets, all about it's all about finding the way to kind of use the system in a way that wasn't yeah, intended. In economics, they refer to it as a perverse and, incentive. Uh, and that's, you know, people do that all the time and they create all these weird derivatives in um, like financial markets that that kind of were not what the market originally had intended that allow them to 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 use these the, the way the system works uh, kind of against it. And we get and that, that probably happens in bureaucracies as well. And we get absolutely we get things like the 2008 uh, market failure that causes huge global recession and the like because people figured out ways of labeling things that the market then treated as though they were X when in fact they were not X underneath that X being premium. Um, and of course that will occur with respect to artificial intelligence. One of the things I do is take after the people, very smart people who describe artificial general intelligence as uh, able to in effect take over the world. Well, it's data dependent and data is subject to poisoning, distortion, mislabeling, et cetera. And therefore ultimately those, uh, those means of uh, uh, the, that, that critical input um, is going to be manipulated by people who want to manipulate the system in the same way you're pointing out about uh, markets. Um, Joe, just to come back for a minute to your question, though, about markets and bureaucracies and machines, um, it's very interesting to think about how markets and bureaucracies interact, put aside machine intelligence. Um, it's a big issue in our society when to use bureaucracies and when to use markets. Um, when do we allocate by the capitalist system? When do we allocate by legislation and the like? We generally uh, have a set of shared beliefs in our society about we don't use bureaucracies to set prices. And we don't use markets to do things like determine whether 
somebody's guilty of a crime. Um, we recognize that the bureaucracies and the markets have different kinds of strengths and functions. On the other hand, um, if you take, for example, a communist state, uh, as it existed in uh, the Marxian theories of the 1970s, the theory was the bureaucracy should by and large set the prices. Um, and there's a wonderful book, which is again, something I point to in the footnotes. I'm, uh, you can see, I'm delighted if anybody listening to this reads the paper, but I really want them to read the footnotes. Um, there's a book by Francis Buford, which is, uh, doesn't get the attention it really deserves called Red Plenty. And it's a book about, um, I never thought I'd be enthralled by a novel about Marxian economics. <laughs> but it envisions an effort to to persuade the Russian leaders in the 70s that they should use, have a computer set the prices. And um, uh, ultimately, they, they're not willing to do that, but it gets you into the why not aspect of that. So does a good artificial intelligence system begin to displace markets in the time ahead? And why shouldn't it displace bureaucracy? If all a bureaucracy is after is dispassionate comparisons of, of forms and patterns, assessments of them, and what I want to do is, as a bureaucrat, repress my own humanity, a comment made by Max Weber, I don't want people to act like people in bureaucracies. Um, why can't I use machines then in those contexts? And that gets you into a whole set of, I think, really interesting issues. Ultimately, for me, the most central issues about machine intelligence are not about machine intelligence. They're about machine intelligence in the context of bureaucracies and markets. How do they reshape those? How do those systems use the machines? How do we find the balance between the three of them? And really, from my standpoint, the paper will be most gratifying uh, if it, in fact, uh, generates that kind of discussion about the three of them. So the market bureaucracy is not just an analogy. It's a comment about the ecosystem and the interaction, which is really what, in my opinion, we ought to care about. Um, and then hopefully it opens up that, that point so that others will be engaged by it. And maybe I really won't be satisfied if they just read the footnotes. I had one more point that I wanted to get maybe both of your views on. So so in the paper, Richard, you say, um, you, you talk about um, self-regulation by uh, the people who develop machine learning. You say, if those responsible for the development of machine intelligence learn from this history, they can anticipate and moderate the demand for oversight by developing their own systems of professional self-regulation. And we've seen some of the big tech companies try to do this. You know, Google and Facebook and other companies have tried to set up ethics boards and um, independent oversight and ethics departments in their um, companies, but they've had spectacular failures there. And I'm wondering why it's so hard. I think that they're caught up that. in one of the other systems in, in the markets uh, that uh, that that the the quality of the AI outcomes are determined in part by the quality of their bottom line. Like the, the, the output isn't necessarily the, the quality of the result. It's the quality of the result um, as it relates to a financial system. Um, yeah. 
So is it impossible to self-regulate in, in a market economy? Um, I don't think it's impossible, but I think uh, the reality is because of what Joe says, the self-interest, um, and also because any one enterprise will have a point of view, um, ultimately it's the interplay of many different points of view and there will be external regulation regardless. But let me take an analogy very familiar to everybody at Purple Hat, the participants who are hearing this, uh, and that's cybersecurity. Um, and essentially the 20th century story is uh, the rush to the marketplace uh, that Joe has described um, and the sliding of security concerns. Uh, comes then 9-11 and uh, Bill Gates's memo and Microsoft and suddenly this is given greater priority. But it's pretty clear that the market demands of the system still cause this to get less priority than it should. And the external world wakes up to this and says, we can't let people just produce software that satisfies their priorities uh, for functionality and the like. Uh, we need to have some external requirements and we're still feeling our way through that. How much and how does the state um, regulate uh, cyber uh, software? And my sense is we'll go through that with uh, machine intelligence. Um, and to me, it's kind of evident partly because of the history of bureaucracies and markets that that's where we're headed. I think if you ignore the history in these other areas, including the cybersecurity, and you just de novo approach the problem, you might come to other conclusions. But uh, I think the, the historical record is pretty powerful uh, and drives me to the view I have. Um, that's probably an excellent place to leave the conversation. Um, it's a shame because I had a question for, from <laughs> For both of you, uh, which just will disappear into the ether because that was just a very good place to wrap this up, I think. Um, anyway. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be applications. And also, if you're going to explain to me your abilities to predict the stock market, I'll give you an answer to your How? question in return. Uh, my, my abilities <laughs> to predict the stock market are um, single bedroom apartment. Uh, the, uh, just, you know. Uh, um, well, one of the things. Hey, look, Joe, you're wearing a tie yeah, in the capitalist yeah, as, uh, group. In the famous, the famously uh, money, money intensive uh, reporter uh, job. Thank you, thank you both for taking this all uh, so seriously with such good attention. And Melanie, uh, thank you for the work you've done that really contributed to this. That uh, helps certainly helped me to understand the field. Starting with your well, book, thanks, other I things, your book on complexity. So thank you. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I really enjoyed this paper. It was fun talking about it. I'm just, I'm kind of fascinated. One of the things that's sort of fascinating to me is uh, the one big difference between artificial intelligence and the other two systems is the exponential growth of processing power. Like the, the market isn't going to be exponentially, have exponentially more resources over time or bureaucracies aren't going to uh, get exponentially more efficient uh, artificial intelligence has more processing power and storage uh on a not not i mean i don't know how stable moore's law is but at least on at least on a very fast growing basis and so 
I mean, it's interesting to think about whether the same kinds of end state problems will exist. Um, yes. I, I think it's, I think that that point is, is very right. Uh, it's speed in two dimensions. Uh, one is the speed of the processes, compute power, et cetera. The other is the proliferation of the system. We had a long time to grow used to markets and bureaucracies. And this is coming much faster. It's the character of the modern age. The regulatory processes play catch up and they, uh, they haven't speeded up in proportion to the speed of the systems they're attempting to regulate. And that raises a whole lot of issues. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, there's so many more things to talk about. We could go on and on, but unfortunately we're out of time for this particular version of the discussion, but I hope that we can all continue in some, in some way in the future.